And isn't that where you want Al shooting the ball right in the corner? I mean, that's his, that's his sweet spot. Um, if he has one, but yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I high fived you, but there's no video. I saw. Uh, it. Let's go! Come on, everybody, and let's get to pumping, cause it's real crazy time. David Ritson is jumping All right, everybody, welcome to the 31st edition of the Holy Backboard Podcast. I am Dustin, live from sunny and toasty Rip City, and I got my man, Sage, just chilling, trying to get healthy. I'm actually pretty sick, but podcast. Yeah, Holy Backboard needs me, but we got an excellent guest. I actually talked to my mom, and she said that our guest right here is her favorite guest out of all the years of radio. <laughs> He and Shalmar Clark are her two favorite guests on my shows. So we got the man, the myth, the legend. What's going on, guys? <laughs> hey, is that, are you serious? Am I seriously your mom's favorite guest? That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. This and is I've, incredible. I've done radio for six years and podcasting <laughs> for two. Like, she's heard all of them. You are her favorite guest. This is a high bar to live up to. Yeah, I know. And I don't know. And I'm nervous. I know, know. I'm putting some pressure on you. But have you ever had an intro that good? No, that's incredible. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it be back. Yeah. For our listeners, we have Dane Carbaugh with us. Dane was a guest earlier this season. One of my personal favorite episodes. So you know I had to get him for the playoff edition of the Holy Backboard podcast. Uh, Trailblazers drop game one in Los Angeles by 20, 115 to 95. We've got Dane here. He's going to help us dig into the game. What went wrong? Did anything go right? And what do the Trailblazers need to do in game two to get the split that they covet and head back to Rip City tied one apiece? Uh, Dane, first impressions of the game, maybe one thing that completely stood out to you that just completely went wrong. Uh, the thing that I noticed, I put it in my preview over on Blazer's Edge, um, but the Clippers did it kind of to a T, and that's now with Blake Griffin back in the lineup and with uh, Portland having to sort of go between Mason Plumley, Ed Davis, Noah Vonley, who's not really been in the rotation, Maurice Harkless, and Alfred Camino trying to figure out a way to guard him. They just went down low and hammered it, hammered it, hammered it. Got him in foul trouble with an already pretty thin front line, especially defensively. Uh, didn't work well for them. So that was a big thing that stood out to me. And uh, good on Doc Rivers for noticing that uh, that sort of deficiency on that side of the floor. Yeah, you look at Blake. He goes for 19 points, only on 10 shots, 12 boards. But the, he did most of his damage at the line. He went 9 of 12. Mm -hmm. And I think what set the tone early on was the Clippers, they decided to put uh, Luke Richard and Bahamute on CJ McCollum. That left JJ Redick on Mo Harkless. Portland had success going down there early, but on the other end, like you mentioned, Mo got matched up on Blake a couple times, picked up a couple early fouls, and was sent to the bench. And I think that really threw off uh, Portland's rhythm. I'm not sure how much of a different ball game it would have been had Mo Harkless been out of foul trouble, but. It's almost like one of those what-if questions, almost like uh, when the Ducks played the Buckeyes in the national championship game, they go up 7 nothing, and then three drop passes that derail a drive, and it just kind of snowballs and goes downhill from there. Uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen again in Game 2, but if you're Terry Stotts and you can expect 
Doc Rivers to put better defenders and kind of hide J.J. Redick, do you think they will continue to attack Redick on the defensive end regardless of who he's defending? I don't know. I think that it's – I think it's uh, – that's certainly in the realm of what's going to happen as the offense sort of adjusts on a string. But I'm not sure that that's going to be their number one priority. They already kind of have that figured out. But, of course, the whole issue of getting it to Maurice Harkless or Gerald Henderson down low or somebody else like that to bang against Redick in the post is getting the ball properly out of the hands of Damien and CJ, moving it into that. They sort of run that that break where they run the five up to the free throw line and then rotate over to the wings um, and, you know, they have to get over that first if they really want to make that uh, sort of the, the, the pointed attack down low against the Clippers. They have to find a way to make sure they're not turning the ball over as CJ and Damian get uh, blitz in the pick and roll up high. Yeah, that was a big concern watching this this first quarter. And I think Portland missed a lot of chances. They were extremely sloppy. They had five first quarter turnovers, three Damian Lillard was the culprit. And it was a couple times of Chris Paul just reading the pass and sticking his paw mm-hmm. out there and knocking it down, leading to, you know, lobs to DeAndre on the other end. It felt like maybe 50 to 60% of our possessions, it was difficult just to make an entry pass. It can't be that difficult if you're going to try to win a playoff game, let alone on the road. So if you're Terry Stotts and the Clippers have been running these blitzing double teams, these traps, ever since Dame's really been in the league, it is... Do fans have hope that he's going to make an adjustment? Is there an adjustment without, you know, a really strong pick and roll finisher for the Blazers? It's for me it's tough because I think that the Clippers did two things exceptionally well. One you already pointed out, which is that they read the passing lanes. They knew what the first action was coming off of a lot of these high pick and roll plays for the Blazers. Two, and I noted this on Twitter uh when this game happened, but uh the the Blazers fell down a lot coming off of their own offensive picks, which kind of didn't make any sense until you saw some slow-mo replays, especially when Chris Paul funding got called for a foul on him. But um, they are reaching and grabbing at the jerseys and midsections as they come around these picks and as they try to split that blitz. So, you know, uh, there was a couple turnovers by Damian there where he tried to split the pick, and I think one by CJ too, where they just fell down to their knees after they you know, went, went through those two guys blitzing, and then the ball just rolled to the other guy. And then started a fast break for the Clippers. So in terms of an adjustment, it's tough because Terry's offense is sort of built around doing a lot of repetitive things over and over and over again. And while they do have things like the thumb series, which I've covered before, that's a basic sort of uh, running handoff play with a shooting guard or small forward going from wing across the formation, switching the side of the floor, that you can get into what you're talking about with a, a post player or even a guard post, right? You can switch it up. Um you know, a lot of the Blazer sets start with a high pick and roll. And um, with C.J. McCollum sort of uh, in that, um, sorry, with, with C.J. and Damian sort of having to handle that, I think the biggest thing you can hope for is uh, uh, taking a look at the tape, seeing what uh, what they can do to protect their dribble a little bit better. Because the Blitz, the blitz doesn't necessarily, um, they don't trap incredibly hard. Right, they're they're not exactly doing it the way that the Heat do it, so I think that they're they're hoping they sort of wanted to funnel the ball to missed shots by Alfarik Aminu at the middle of the floor. We saw when the Blazers didn't turn it over, they did get that shot open, right? So I think being able to capitalize on that, maybe rotating the lineup or 
you know, who's playing where, if there's like sort of maybe a back screen that forces a switch. And so that player instead is Gerald Henderson taking that shot or Alan Crabb taking that shot because of a rotation on the backside. That's probably those are the two things that I can kind of think of making sure that that three pointer counts and uh, maybe protecting the ball a little better just in terms of dribbling because, you know, they're not, they're not trying to force a, a, a steal necessarily. They're, they're trying to, to panic and, and force a bad pass. Yeah, you definitely touched on a, a couple of points that I want to get to. First off, I have in my notes, the Blazers have to make these open threes. If they're going to continue to blitz Damon CJ and make others beat them, we have to. Otherwise, the series is going to be over in four, and it will be quick and uh, probably painless because there will be blowouts like they were in game one. And specifically, Al Farouk Aminu, he was getting two to three seconds to shoot the ball. Yeah. Um, he even had time to take hesitation dribbles. I felt like he was extremely passive in that game, and we need him just to catch and shoot. He shoots just, what was it, two of eight from the three-point line, and he did he did chip in 12 rebounds. He was easily our best defender, but Doc Rivers is going to live and die with Alfa Rukuminu making threes, and until he starts making a couple the Trailblazers' offense is going to be in a vacuum. I mean, it's going to get suffocated. And I think the best rotation that they had on that was when they put Aminu, uh, which if, if uh, for uh, for fans listening to us, essentially what it came down to is it was Blake guarding Aminu on the wing and letting him sag. So he acted as a, a third defender on the blitz and the pick and roll. And so when they put Aminu into the corner... And then Aminu drove, and they rotated a guard like Henderson or Crabb to the top of the arc. Instead of putting Aminu at the top of the arc, that was far more successful than having Aminu be at the top of the arc and shoot the ball himself. So if they can sort of say, okay, well, every time that we run a pick and roll, we're going to put Aminu in the corner, and then he's going to be the guy that's making people either collapse on him on the baseline so we have a cutter or a shooter at the top of the key, that's what we're going to do instead of taking that open shot ourselves right off the bat. And isn't that where you want Al shooting the ball right in the corner? I mean, that's his, that's his sweet spot. Um, if he has one, but yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I high fived you, but there's no video. I saw. Uh, it. <laughs> hey, he was he was shooting hot coming into this game. I think he will turn it around. But you definitely, I would prefer him to shoot in that corner than the wing, which yep. is yeah. you know, there's me personally as a shooter, I prefer either top of the key or corner. Um, not that I'm an NBA caliber player of any sorts, but that's just um, from one shooter to another. And statistics probably say that Al likes the corner as well. But uh, you also mentioned uh, CJ McCollum, and he was uh, MIA uh, last night. He only had nine points, just got 11 shots up, uh, one of five from three, and only three assists in 37 minutes. This is a player who averaged nearly 26 points on like 60% shooting over the final three games against the Memphis Grizzlies last year. And make no mistake about it, the Grizzlies defense is, I think, light years ahead of what Portland is seeing against even a pretty good Clipper defense. But he has shown he can score against the league's best defenses. Is it just a case of Portland not having that threat of a LaMarcus Aldridge to kind of... um, make the Clippers think twice, so now they're just going all out on him, Dane? I think so. I mean, you, you hit it on the head, which is something that we kind of get uh, distracted with if, you know, Alfred Camino is missing or airballing three-pointers at the top of the key, but uh, or the, the top of the, the arc, but they're also missing any kind of mid-range threat that 
uh, is actionable off the pick and roll. That's why they can blitz that guy because they don't have the roll guy can't hit a shot. The 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 guy's uh, sliding into the open space. The garden spot can't hit a shot. Um, that's a real real issue. And I think the thing that I noticed against CJ is whoever was guarding him. Even if they got matched up against uh, L Ram or or got, got the switch on Blake or something, you know, uh, they stayed out on him and they didn't necessarily give him the drive, but they they had clearly watched on tape uh, sort of how long it takes for him to drive off of a three point shot and dribbling around trying to maybe create that that quick three point shot for himself or his cadence or all that kind of stuff and. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, they're also able to, once he starts to make the move, they're able to then suck to the middle of the floor and leave somebody like Alfarik and Mino open. So um, they have that help defender on CJ when he drove. So uh, we, we clearly saw them game plan just as much for him uh, specifically as as they did for, for Damian. And one player who I think is arguably Portland's best mid-range shooter was Gerald Henderson and he was really the only trailblazer who had it going not named Damian Lillard he had 16 points an efficient 7 of 12 from the field 100% from three-point land in uh, 29 minutes Gerald is the vet on this team even though he's under you know 30 years old he has uh, been in the league a lot longer than a lot of our players do you expect more of him as a calming presence on the court and as a player who can not only get points in the post, but put up a good fight defensively. Yeah, I think so, especially because I think as as cool of a customer as Damian is, even last night we saw Chris Paul get under his skin and mm-hmm. DeAndre Jordan get under his skin. So, uh, you know, they are, the Clippers are Damian's foil. And uh, whether he gets over them this year or next year or wh- whatever it is, I think having Gerald, who's there to sort of, um, you know, he definitely balances those guys out. That guy's been really a professional and and you know and a starter and a, a you know double digit scorer for almost his entire career and so having him is sort of invaluable especially when you, normally that guy is you know both cj and damien are obviously pretty cool customers ed's a cool customer um but when they're getting frustrated out there and and, and frustrated when they know that it matters most it's good to have that other guy who kind of doesn't you know Maybe it's that he's new, right? He's new to the team, and so he doesn't ha- he doesn't have the, that that deep seated. Oh, this guy's been messing with me for the last couple of years or anything. So, uh, but yeah, he he's great to have out there. Kind of surprising that he was the one to to step up, I think. Um, but he, you know, he's he's a more dynamic player than you know you're uh, off the bench in terms of him versus Alan Crabb or somebody else like that. You know, so it it make it does make sense that he's able to he was able to perform, and uh, you know, he kind of he kind of kept him at least uh, nipping at the heels a little bit. So, And uh, switching positions to the bigs, the Blazer big man actually had a lot of success against the Clippers this season throughout four games. Yes, Blake Griffin didn't play in two of those, but Mason Plumley was completely non-existent, and it was almost like we were playing with Joel Prisbilla minus the defense out there because he couldn't, seemed like he couldn't even catch the ball, put it in the bucket. He was one of six and didn't give us hardly anything on the glass, just five boards uh, in 19 minutes. If he is not going to be able to convert off in that pick and roll, why is he in the game? What does he give What does he give Terry Stotts out there that a guy like Ed Davis or Chris Kamen doesn't? Uh, not a lot, honestly, because his, his main benefit is uh, as a passer on, on the high post. And, you know, he's a pretty – this is sort of the – we're seeing the weakness of the Blazers roster as, as good as it's been to see them succeed this year. I'm sorry to say – 
you know, a lot of their players are either young or developing or only have a couple dimensions or only have one, uh, you know, starting level dimension to their game. And Mason is one of them. He's not a very good defender and he's not, I mean, uh, up against uh, a good rebounding tandem and a tough set of posts like the Clippers have in DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin. You know, he's not he's not an elite rebounder. That that's or and he's not an elite he's not an elite uh, guy who boxes out for other dudes. He's not Robin Lopez in that aspect, right? And so, yeah, looking back at the last uh, four, or the regular season four games that he had against the the Clippers, Ed Davis was a tremendous tremendous asset to Portland. Um but that being said, I'm, you know, he, he Terry Stotts started Aminu at the four and um you know, I'm not sh- I'm not sure what the move is because it's not like you know, giving Vonley minutes isn't necessarily going to work. I mean, do you start? Um, did Ed Davis start at center, or did he? Was he the first guy off the bench? I don't remember. I believe he was the first guy off the bench. Right. No, it wasn't. It was. Um, it was either Crab because Harkless got in trouble. That's correct. Okay, so I mean, does he start Ed Davis and bring in Mason against a? Uh, you know, can can Mason Plumley do more against? Cole Aldrich or something, you know, I, I don't know. But the Clippers have clearly scouted uh, Mason Plumbing to the extent that, look, this is what he's going to do. He's going he's gonna to move on that second action on these plays. He's going to pass from the wing to backside cutters or flip or uh, set flare screens or something in the second or third actions. This is where we're going to stop him, and he can't really do anything else. So it's definitely working. Good for the, good for the Clippers coaching staff. So if Mason Plumley can't do all of those things, but he can pass and initiate the offense – wouldn't it make sense to get him the ball on the high post and then let him initiate the offense and work Damon, CJ, and our shooters off the ball so they're not getting constantly trapped? Uh, wouldn't it be at least a nice wrinkle to throw in there to uh, not keep things so predictable? It would be interesting. We've seen a lot of those plays in terms of uh, the, the first action is just a quick handoff to Myers or Mason like right at the three-point line on the elbow. But we, we have seen a little bit of that this year in terms of that's that's how it starts, but I think I mean that's that we're also just talking about that's a general tenant of the of the Portland offense and I think that uh the Clippers did a good job denying the ball to Mason even in that position or denying the, the passing lanes right away if they did get the ball or they pushed him farther away than he wanted to be in terms of how the play is spaced they clearly scouted that exact thing so I, I don't know that I don't know that there's um there's much to be done there if if uh, if they can't find him a, a better way to to get him the ball Yeah I mean that's step 1 if you cannot get the ball to the player that needs to get the ball. I mean, without so much difficulty and time running off the clock, you're basically screwed. And that's what Portland's going to have to do and and find a way to uh, combat what Doc Rivers sent at them in game one. One player who surprisingly got minutes, Chris Kamen, you know, six (laughs) points, three of four shooting, seven minutes. Was that just a flash in the pan, similar to what he did against the Spurs late in the year? Or is this a legitimate rotation um, player that Terry Stotts needs to go to simply because he has the size, the beef to go up against the Clipper front line? And he can, he is a capable offensive player. Yeah, I think legitimate given context, right? Because of where the Portland is, the fact that they're three games away from ending their season, and they're in a dogfight against a, a pretty difficult team and a team that gets under their skin. Cayman obviously gave them the edge in terms of being somebody who could not just bark but bite back, you know, foul some guys, get get players angry, start you know, rile up rile them up a little bit. If you can figure out how to remember how to set a screen without getting called for a moving pick, 
you know, he might be a viable pop option because clearly the way that they play the passing lane against Mason is sagging back because he's not going to shoot the ball where he catches it. And Chris obviously can do that and he can pass the ball a little bit. So, uh, I mean, honestly, I think he is going to be a valuable part of the rotation. I think he comes in earlier uh, on Wednesday because there's not a lot of other options, and uh, you know, Noah Vonley is on it. And in terms of rotating guys around, the issue with Portland is you can only go so small, and they already started the game small uh, in Game One. And so, adding adding Chris Kamen, like you said, with a little bit of beef, that might be the way to go. I think so. So you're a pretty big Myers guy. Uh, he has his moments with me. I know Sage is probably off off the wagon, but would he had made a difference in this in this game one or in the series being able to pull the defense away and he has shown the ability to play tough defense against big centers? Um would he have he would have made a difference, yes, I think, just because of the way that he spaces the floor and clearly Portland is um sort of suffering from uh, their lack of multidimensionality. But in terms of what Myers brings, you know, I think, especially this season, when he's been healthy even, uh, teams have scouted against him that they kind of know what he wants to do. And so we saw as, as, as his season went on before he really hurt his shoulder for the second time that he figured out how he could adjust, right? So what he used to do was either shoot the ball, pump, or pump fake and drive. And now what he started, and what we started doing what about right after the All Star game, I think he started, uh, you know, if he couldn't get the three, he'd pump fake, take one dribble, and then shoot. And say, look, this is just a good a shot for me. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I have a soft touch. I can do it. So he's at least has those two dimensions to his offensive game. He's not, even though he can zip the ball around, he's not necessarily uh, as good a, a vision player as Mason is. So I don't think he would have been the difference, but I think he would have helped Portland, one, absorb some fouls, two, challenge shots a little bit better. Because there was a couple plays there where Chris Paul and even uh, Jamal Crawford were just you know, shooting eight-footers, you know, floaters in the lane. It, w- it wasn't anybody stopping them. Um, so he definitely would have at least had some effect. I'm not sure that he was, he's the, the key to it, but it would be nice for Portland to have him. Yeah, definitely. I just it's got to be a question that a lot of fans are probably asking because who's the one player that's not played in the series and won't play? It's Myers. So, would he have made the difference? I I tend to agree with you. I think he would have helped game 1. I don't think it would have mattered the way that Portland needs more than just Lillard and Henderson over, you know, 15 points. If Myers got us 15, we what? We still lose by 15 points. So, right. Which is although although I will say to to play devil's advocate to the situation, if you have Myers playing the four, or at least the 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 matchup is with I mean either with DeAndre or Blake guarding him, you can't blitz the pick as hard as you can anymore because then your four Alpha Camino rotating to the top of the key or rotating to the to the corner is then Myers who's definitely uh, a legit threat. You can't just leave him open for, like you said, two or three seconds. So maybe that changes entirely how Portland is able, or the, the Clippers are able to then, um, one, uh, stay ahead by so much with Myers is hitting threes, and two, uh, sort of uh, slow down how uh, how well Damien and CJ are able to play. So you know, maybe he is a factor. Maybe he's more of a factor we're giving credit for. I don't know. And I guess that's what his agent is going to be <laughs> going to deal with Shea with if it's a four-game sweep. Is that, hey, my client would have really helped you guys out there. See what you did actually, actually, last year. It's actually my, my night job. I'm just Myra's agent at night, you know, just <laughs> put on the suit. Just getting those subtle yeah. checks. Yeah. One thing I wanted to get your take on, because I noticed it early and often in that game, was 
Stotts went with CJ McCollum on JJ Redick, and Redick ran him ragged. He had 17 points on 8 of 12 shooting, um, and he was getting good looks. And it's not like CJ was completely giving up on the play. He was working his ass off, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't getting any help uh, once Redick caught the ball. And he's obviously doesn't have the wingspan that maybe an Alan Crabb has or a quickness that an, an elite defender like Avery Bradley has. Right. So I don't think that matchup can go on for the rest of the series because Redick is too good of a shooter. He's going to make those, you know, catch, shoot, nobody's in my face. That's, that's going to go. Maybe not 75%, but he's going to be over 50. If they're going to put Redick on Harkless, why wouldn't we put a better defender, maybe a longer defender on um, Redick? Because, you know, play Mba Mute like you're four on five. Like, dare him to shoot. That's, you know, maybe hide CJ or Dame on Sure. Him. And so, and somebody even said that on Twitter is that if uh, this game would be a lot closer if Portland was uh, funneling shots toward uh, Ram the way that uh, the Clippers are funneling shots towards Aminu. Um, I, but I think the issue, the thing that I, that I kind of take issue with is the other side of that whole argument is that it felt like I was back, uh, you know, early part of college where and the early part of uh, J.J. Reddick's pro career where people are, you know, knocking on him for being slow, white and unathletic. Right. We know now and J.J. Reddick has done a ton and ton of work to be the guy who runs around 28 screens and shoots a jumper. He's literally one of the best players in the NBA at doing that. So it's not surprising that a player in his third year uh, who is not known as a defensive force yet, like CJ, isn't able to stop him. I mean, uh, guys who are uh, much, much high, more highly regarded as defenders, I have a hard time stopping J.J. Redick. So it's kind of a silly thing for me to, to see that. But in terms of an actual uh, discussion, I mean, maybe you are looking at putting Gerald Henderson at him and playing him more minutes. Uh, you know, Allen has a, um, um, obviously a much better uh, uh, length uh, advantage, but he's more susceptible to get caught around picks and sometimes mm-hmm. looks lost. And he looked lost a little bit in game one. So, I mean, if, if you're going to make a change at all, like you're suggesting, the only person I can kind of think of would be Henderson. And so how, how does that change the lineup? And, and how, do you, how do you work that in with making sure you have both Dame, CJ, Henderson in the lineup and have somebody who can, who's big enough to stop uh, Blake Griffin and John Ray Jordan? It's, it's, a, it's a, going to be a fun math problem for Terry Stotts, that's for sure. It feels like you're at the Hoover Dam and you start to see leaks coming through and there's four leaks, but you only have what three pieces of bubble gum. You try <laughs> to put one in each, but there's always going to be a leak and it's going to break any, any minute now or, in, or over the course of time. So Portland definitely has their hands full with this series, probably have their hands the most full with Chris Paul though, who looked aggressive, which is a terrible sign. If you're a trailblazer fan, uh, 28 points on 10 of 19 shooting, uh, 11 dimes, uh, just two turnovers, and played pesky-ass defense on Damian Lillard. Like you said, clawing, grabbing, pulling, getting away with it because he's Chris Paul. And if they're not going to call it, why not keep doing it? Is there any way Portland can slow down Paul? It's tough because you don't have any sort of... Um counter like you had in years past you know when when uh the Blazers played the Spurs they'd put Nick Batum on a point guard and see if that worked out for a couple a couple series against Tony Parker right or uh, uh or whoever it may be I'm not sure that 
the Blazers have a way to um, counter Chris Paul just because of the uh, uh, the the dynamism. Honestly, the dynamism that the Clippers' offense does have. Because you have J.J. Redick, like you said, running around all these screens. You have the pick and roll with both DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin. And Blake Griffin, like we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, can shoot mid-range jumpers. So you have all these weapons given to him and not a lot of uh, even good individual defenser, defenders um, on the Blazers' side of the ball. So can you slow him down? I think that they, um, the Blazers do what they do on offense. And I clearly saw that um, instead of trying to stop Chris Paul... Uh, especially you saw it in the first, their first and second quarter. Instead of trying to stop him specifically, uh, they sort of goaded him into making the pass, and then the extra, and then the, the extra pass after that. And the, and the Blazers actually jumped a lot of uh, in a lot of the passing lanes, especially down low. We saw Ed Davis come over with a couple tips. Uh, same thing with Mo Harkless and uh, uh, some change of possession there. Um, they clearly know sort of what they want to do, and the Blazers coaching staff has done a good job of scouting uh, the Clippers' offense. So I think what they can hope to do is maybe switch up the um, the matchups on uh, on Redick and um, hope that they can defend Blake a little bit better and then do the same thing as just sort of jump those passing lanes. But in terms of an individual being able to stop Chris Paul, I mean, it's Chris Paul, man. Exactly. And if you're a Trailblazer fan and you see that Lillard gets 21 points, almost 50% shooting, um, three of eight from three, got to the line six times, had eight assists. It's not a fantastic night, uh, slightly below his average in points. But in terms of his season average against the Clippers, uh, it's got to be somewhat of a bright spot. And the fact that Dame probably looked even average. So there's a lot of room for improvement for Portland's best player. Uh, does that give you any hope going into game two? Yeah, I didn't think that Damian got upset to the point where I thought he would uh, lost it or lost his grip on the game. Um, I think a couple times we saw him trying to w- try to you know win the game in the second quarter with one quick three, that kind of stuff. Um, but he did a good job. Uh, pushing to the rim and 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 finding you saw those assists uh, you know f- finding somebody else to uh, finish it off because the Clippers did the same thing for CJ they did for Damian which is that they they did not let him get off that that one bounce step to the side three pointer off the high high single pick they did not let him or CJ get that off at all so um, yeah I think he's he's okay I think that the problem that we have really is that uh, we see that CJ was really limited and as much as it's uh nice to think that the portland trailblazers are uh a good offensive team because of the system uh they aren't where they are without uh damien and cj being you know top five in scoring so scoring guards in the league so um they they need those guys to get to to play better and so um you know hopefully cj can get on back on track i know he wants to so looking ahead to game two and some keys for a trailblazer victory or at least uh, a more competitive game, because I think even if the Portland comes out and loses game two by, what, three or four points, I think that gives them confidence that they can steal two games in Portland and make it a three-game series. So is one of those keys Damon CJ scoring for how many points? Is it, is it 45? Do they have to get 50 combined? Uh, what's that magic number for game two? It's tough because I think if we're talking about that they need to make some uh, defensive adjustments, even though the Clippers scored a lot of points in the first game, I think that, uh, you know, it's it may be how they – basketball is a game of runs, right? So mm-hmm. it may be how they score those points. So if they can find a way to open themselves up from three-point range, 
maybe they you know need to score in the the middle low 40s if um it's the thing where they really can't get around those picks or uh they can't they can't split them properly um maybe it's uh finding ways to cut to the basket get deeper have more guys uh, push in and uh you know find find scoring for somebody else i don't know but maybe they need to go go to the bucket and lift the line you know but how if if they can do that maybe we're talking about you know a slow a slow 50 points so yeah. um yeah it's it's tough and I, I you mentioned the three point line and i think that is a huge key it wasn't necessarily a three point shot but i saw guys like vonley and plumley and aminu they were passing up just wide open in the case of Mason, there's a 10-foot shot, Bonley 15, all within their wheelhouse, and they drove it into the teeth of the defense for a much more difficult shot. And I just wanted to just shoot that regular shot. If you miss it, so be it. But that is a good open shot, and the three-point line will be a key because Portland takes a lot of threes, way more than the Clippers. L.A. only took 17 in Game 1. Portland took 30. They're going to have to cash in on more than 10 of those, whether it's Dame, C.J., Aminu, Crab, Henderson – Portland has shooters, but I think it will just take a few makes and it will just loosen that defense a bit. Uh, if Portland misses, it's just going to feel more and more tight. The pressure is going to build and Los Angeles is going to pounce just like the Grizzlies did uh, last year. Uh, Dane, going in to game two, would you say Portland has to win that small forward battle? When you look at the collection that the Clippers trotted out there, we're talking about uh, Mbamute, no points, no shot attempts, five boards. Wesley Johnson, three points, two boards. Jeff Green, three points, no rebounds. Uh, Aminu played a better game than those three, but I think he's got to have a significantly better performance than those three. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And what I want to see from him, honestly, is if he's going to clunk those three-pointers, take it to the rim. Because we know that he can do that. And we know he can gather speed quickly from you know 30 feet away from the hoop. Uh, that's, that's sort of what I would hope that he would do. Because I think it's easy... As 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 deep as the Clippers are, they are also they also sort of peak at certain positions, and they rely on their bench sort of as a unit. So, I think obviously Aminu is a better player at the moment, especially considering inconsistent play from Jeff Green uh, is 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 the best small forward on on the on the floor. But whether he plays that position or not, we'll see. Lastly, for looking forward to Game Two, two things. Portland gets just five second-chance points, and they allow 48. They get outscored 48-34 in the paint. Is wow. there any way that Portland can buck those two trends? I mean, we saw a lot of uh, the issue with battling uh, the Clippers down low is all of the – it's like watching Robin Lopez, is, is watching all of the tip-outs, and, and those, those are the second-chance points that the Clippers really got so many times, all the way out to you know mid-court. So, uh, but the same thing happened on the Blazers' offensive side of the ball, where uh, DeAndre Jordan was uh, getting defensive rebounds, tipping out to start uh, to start a change of possession. Um, I don't know that the matchup. That, this is where I, I think I would I'd like to see if Ed Davis can just start right away because he's a much he's much better at boxing out than Mason Plumlee is, and try to either get some uh, quick fouls called on. Jordan down low, or at least minimize the back tip attempts from him to be able to, like you said, create uh, more second chance points for the Blazers or eliminate ones for the Clippers. Uh, and obviously, um, those rebounds turn into points in the paint for the Clippers as well. So, uh, yeah, I think that I think Ed Davis might be the key to that. Um, but whether or not 
he and the rest of the Trailblazers' front line can stay out of foul trouble, I think, will be the key moving forward in Game 2. Yeah, Ed Davis is too efficient around the rim for him to only be playing 20 minutes. Uh, I don't know if starting him is the answer. Maybe you just keep the rotation going, but maybe you pull Plumlee four or five minutes into that and you give Ed Davis more minutes. So in total, he's in your finishing five and he's playing 30-plus minutes. And he's also fantastic on the pick. He's our best big on the pick and roll who finishes uh, awesome with the left, even though players see it every day. It's... I feel like it throws him off a little bit when they're going up against a lefty, so that's what Ed has going for him. But game two, who, what's, what's your X factor, Dane? If you're looking at the overall, we talked about game one, you felt it was Blake Griffin that kind of set the tone for the Clippers. If you're looking at one X factor for game two, what is it? It's probably going to be the performance of Alfred Camino. And I think that's both uh, uh, going to be a, a function of what shots he chooses to take, where he cuts to on the floor, and what position he plays at. Whether or not he can, uh, you know, even though Blake looks skinnier, uh, he's still able to outmuscle Alfred Camino if he's playing at the four or significant minutes at the four. So how that rotation works will be up to Terry Stotts, obviously. Uh, where he chooses to take shots might be up to him. It might be up to the coaching staff. But he's the player that I'm looking that he um, he's the clear uh, sort of uh, hole that needs to be filled if the Blazers want to move forward as a team because the Clippers have clearly decided that um, he's – a one-dimensional player as well, and he has the best chance of sort of breaking out of that given the matchups on the floor. So Alfred Camino is my X-Factor for Game 2. Yeah, and I think it's a perfect choice. For me, a uh, little bit simpler in terms of one of them, they have to score 100 points. Uh, Barrett threw out the stat after Game 1. The Clippers are 41-3 and when they hold their opponent under 100 points, and Portland is just 4-20 and when they fail to score over 100 uh, you look at the first two quarters, 21 and 21 points um, apiece. They did get 29 in the fourth, but that was uh, pretty much garbage time. you got to keep up with the Clippers. They're not going to slow down. They're, I know you you win the game by scoring more points than your opponent, but they have to outscore the Clippers. They have to maybe get into um, a shootout and just get hot. That leads to my second key, three-point shooting. I think Portland's got to hit 15 from downtown. It's a little bit over their average of 11 or 12 but that's what it's going to take to seal a game, especially against an elite team out West. Um, let's get into some fan questions before we go into the predictions. Uh, okay. First question from one of my favorite follows on Twitter, Long Story Longer, asks, what are your thoughts on the hack of DeAndre Jordan strategy? I mean, I think it works, to be honest. Uh, we saw that... Uh, it creates this change of possession, which is nice, especially considering the Blazers lost so many thanks to uh, DeAndre Jordan himself. But um, the issue for Portland, which uh, thankfully it didn't seem to be an issue uh, last night, but in a, in a close game, it definitely will be. And that's how many fouls you have to give and absorb. I joked about it that you could just send in Pat Connett and he could foul out in 18 seconds of game, you know, game <laughs> clock time. But um, that's not realistic. Obviously, it's going to be Mason Plumley, Ed Davis, Noah Vonley, Mo Harkless. Those are going to be the guys who are actually absorbing those fouls. And so how many times you can actually send him to the line when you send him to the line, I think that's obviously uh, it's something that's viable. And, you know, like uh, like uh, like Coach Cal says about 
um, recruiting in, in NCAA. If you don't like it, how the way it works, change the rules, but it works, so I'm going to do it. And I think that Terry Stotts obviously uh, knows that it works, and it's it's been a thing all season long, and uh, I think it will continue to be. So wh- how it's deployed is obviously strategic, so I don't think that it's going to be uh, – it might not be a factor unless the game is close. Yeah, DeAndre shot 8 of 18 from the foul line, and by my calculations was – exactly 50%, 7 of 14, when the hack strategy was implemented. And it's not like it was realistically going to help the Trailblazers win in the fourth quarter when they did it. What I thought Stotts was doing was trying to play little mind games. He went a little Zen yeah. master on DeAndre, and you know Chris Kamen's laughing at him. Uh, that's going to be the way the Trailblazers win this series, if they do, is to maybe get in the minds of the Clippers. Hopefully they get overconfident after a 20-point blowout. And uh, Play to the fact that Chris Paul, as good as he is, has never been out of the the second round of the playoffs. Um, There's more pressure on the Clippers. However, Portland has to make some plays to put that pressure on them. I believe, long story, had a second question. Let's see. Okay, it's in regards to the DeAndre Jordan foul, actually non-foul on Damian Lillard when he fell off of that screen, as you were talking about early on, called timeout, but DeAndre's basically lifting him up by his shoulder. Um, One, do you think it was a dirty play? And two, was it just in the realm of being a playoff basketball foul? I don't think it was a dirty play. I think it was in the realm of being a a playoff basketball foul, that's for sure. I think... um, to his credit, the only way that that gets called as a, a foul is if it gets called as a double foul or a double tech. And that only happens if Damien gets up and extends his arms. So it gets himself into trouble because he didn't because he got up, looked at him and gave him the evil eye. And there was no real you know, movement and limbs flying around. That's why they didn't call a foul there. Uh, that's, you know, things get amplified in the playoffs and therefore refs sort of have to be less sensitive to certain things. I think that that's, that's why there wasn't a foul called there. He, DeAndre didn't swing down at him. Like he tried to grab the ball over the top of his head, essentially. Um, you know, if there was, if there was an extra elbow to the, to the temple or something like that, then you might be seeing that, you know, slow motion replay on sports center and, and have a question about that for the uh, NBA officiating, officiating crew. But I think that that was just normal playoff basketball. All right. Uh, last question from intersection nine one one two parter. How the hell do we handle DeAndre Jordan, who had 18 and 12 in game one? And do you see, we already discussed this a little bit, but how much of a role for Chris Kamen in game two? I think it would be interesting to see if um, Terry Stotts deploys the hack of Jordan early. I'm not saying it's, it's, the, it's the number one thing that you could do, but if you foul him in the first play of the game, it might get into his head that he has to already start doing this and, and the game's going to be a trudge and the Clippers can't, you know, get into their rhythm. JJ Reddick can't get warm running around screens if you sort of, uh, you know, chop that up a little bit. So that might be something interesting to do. I think all the stuff we already talked about slots into that as well is how he's defended, whether or not he can get boxed out a little more so you can negate how he back tips the ball, that kind of stuff. Um, what was the second question? Something about Chris Kamen? Yeah, we touched on it a little bit, but how much of a role, an upgraded role, do you see for Chris Kamen in Game 2? Maybe minutes-wise, plays plays ran for him. Uh, could he be our X-Factor outside of Aminu? No. I mean, it, he, he might be useful, but I think that in terms of realistically how he stretches the floor, he's not... Um, while he is a good jump shooter, he's not necessarily going to make uh, a difference uh, in, in terms of you know playing even 25 minutes a night in a playoff series. 
you know, I think he's he's reaching the limits of uh, how far he can stretch out that uh, uniform he's wearing. You know, he's not he's not in the best shape uh, ready, especially for the end of the season. And I'm not sure that he'll be uh, a deciding factor in a playoff game. He might be certainly be useful. And with some other tweaks that we talked about, I think he could be uh, certainly part of an overall plan, but not individually. So for our listeners out there, Dane, did you have a prediction before the series of who would win and in how many games? You know what? I didn't. I, not, not publicly. I, uh, I, had a, I had a private one. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty average at uh, Clippers and six. So. Okay. So if you've got Clippers and six, does that mean that the Trailblazers have to win to, tomorrow to get – or not tomorrow – have to win Wednesday to get it to six? Uh, actually, you know, I, given the way that game one went and, uh, seeing how, how the, the matchups have gone and how the, the teams have game planned for each other, I think absolutely they do. I think that this is probably a, a, f- a four or five game series if it continues the way it, it has. And given all the stuff we talked about on this podcast, I'm not sure that there's a way right now that I see them going to six if they can't sort of sneak in and, uh, take game two away from them in LA. Do you have Portland winning game two or do you got the Clippers? I have the Clippers. Are you just gonna, you're just going to alienate my whole base, aren't you? Come on. No, no. Because I, I've been Mr. Optimistic all year long on this podcast. Uh, people laughed at me when I predicted we would beat the Warriors after the All-Star break. But uh, it, it's, it's tough to, to see a Blazer win in L.A. after I don't know how many straight games we've lost there. It's tough to get over the hump. Um, I think it's going to be a much more competitive game. I think the Clippers probably end up winning by five or six points, but I don't think the series is necessarily over because if they can play a competitive game and like you said, Dane, we don't see those glaring weaknesses um, in game two that that should give Portland hope that they're going to come back to a more rowdy fan base and the fans are good for a few points alone. And, you know, role players like Aminu and Crab and Henderson, uh, et cetera, all play better in front of the home fans. It's, how NBA players operate. So I think they could still get it uh, tied up after two, or excuse me, after four games. I'm just not sure if they're going to get their first victory in Los Angeles in game two, but I think it would be much more competitive. Um, However, losing game one does not prove historically well for the Trailblazers. Just three and 27 all time when losing game one in a series. The three times they did win the series, 77 against the Sixers, 85 against the Mavericks, and 99 against the Utah Jazz. Uh, in 99 and 77, Portland had uh, finals winning or at least conference finals contending teams. Not likely the case this year. So let's just hope for a good series. I would be thankful for just six games. We pretty much uh, wrapped it yeah. up with the Blazers and Clippers. But what stood out to you over the weekend around the NBA on the playoffs? Just how many uh, blowouts there were in the in the first rounds, and uh, I think Indianapolis taking Game One in Toronto is pretty exciting. Uh, how well Detroit played against Cleveland, excited about that. I hope that series goes well. Um, yeah, but but vice uh, but on the other side of that, you know, just how many blowouts there were, uh, even you know even in games where you know Memphis is playing and they're they're playing with your uh, your third cousin twice removed on the floor. <laughs> um, yeah, the blowouts were the most surprising, but I'm I'm hopeful that there are going to be some really good first round series in the NBA this year. Yeah, I think the West is more of a second round and up. Like that's when it's going to get good in the West. Surprisingly, yeah, I'm more excited to watch the Eastern playoffs at least in the first round. Avery Bradley going out for Boston is a huge bummer because I yeah. think that really gives the Hawks 
um, a lot of ammunition to end that series in five or six games because he is easily one of their, their top players. Really surprised to see the Hornets lay an egg in Miami. I thought that series had seven game potential. It still might. Game ones happen. Blowouts happen. So it's tough. You know, not to have a knee-jerk reaction. And, and over- Char- Charlotte's a tough place to play, I think, too. Exactly. You know, they'll be stoked. Those fans missed out on the playoffs last year. And like you said, the Detroit-Cleveland, that was the amazing game one. Uh, they're going to have a tough time with Andre Drummond. Oddly enough, the Pistons' biggest challenge is getting Reggie Jackson to pass that damn basketball. <laughs> he does dribble the air out of the ball. I think uh, the thing that's great about the first uh, the first round, though, even even if we're talking about um, these blowouts, uh, and it applies to the the Trailblazers series with the Clippers too, is uh, you know playoff series in the NBA are all about coaching um, matchups and adjustments game by game. So we already saw say how Doc Rivers planned for. A certain Trailblazers players and how uh, the Blazers plan for schemes on the Clippers side. What those coaches do moving forward, including lineup changes, but also, I mean, on the fly, it's your life on the line, it's your season on the line. We're going to do this instead. We're going to change this part of our offense, change this part of the defense. Uh, you see that not only you're going to see that, and that's that's the hope for the Blazers, maybe to to win Game Two, but you're going to see that. Uh, in the Charlotte and Miami series. You're going to see that, obviously, uh, as we record this today, we already saw Toronto get their their win at home against Indianapolis, a huge swing the other direction. So uh, that's the fun thing to watch, too, is a lot of good coaches uh, in the playoffs this year, and so we get to see uh, them sort of duke it out, too. Thank you so much, Dane, for being a guest uh, on this podcast. Uh, Sage, a little under the weather, so he's laying in the weeds producing this uh, like a boss. But, you know, stay tuned with us. We're going to have guests after every game. We've got the second half of the Kaiser Connection, uh, Blazer Banter, or Eric Gunderson, whatever you know him by. He'll be talking with us after game two. Uh, Once again, thank you, Dane. And, uh, you know, we may have predicted a a Clipper victory, but I think it's going to be a great game. And let's hope they prove us wrong like they have all season. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. He is a great replacement for me. <laughs> I was just—I'm not feeling well at all. Yeah, man, I can—I can, can see that. Yeah. So yeah, not feeling great. Dane is a beast. That's why he's my mom's favorite. Uh, guest. <laughs> oh man, that oh, was great. Quick question, really quick, from uh, Evan M. He wants to know which uh, Dame Time T-shirt do you like better, the red or the white? Uh, I've only worn the white one once, and that was in uh, the video I did where I argued against myself as a Blazers fan. But you couldn't, but you couldn't actually see it because I cropped it because it was like a two shot for a new, for a, you know, news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I wear the red one. I was wearing the red one earlier today, so I was wearing that one. So I guess I'm gonna say red. But we're moving into summer, and I'm probably more uh, more of a, a a white shirt t shirt type of guy rather than a red t shirt type of guy. So gotcha. So. You like them both. I like them both. You know, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. You'll see me more in white. I think more often. So. All right. Thanks, dude. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Peace out, bud. Later. Let's go. Let's go!